everybody, and welcome to episode 10 of the Shine Sparkers podcast. I'm Amanda Van Heil. I'm going to be your host for today, joined by Darren, our creative director and contributor, Dalagonesh. And we also have two very special guests. We have Sam Balcom and Jeff Dodson from Rainfall Films. How's it going? Hello. <laughs> Well, first of all, thank you guys so, so much for being here. I'm very excited to talk with you about your Metroid movie, The Sky Calls. So first, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about Rainfall Films and some of the productions you've worked on? Sure. Uh, well, we're a, a small production in Post House in Los Angeles. And for, uh, boy, we founded, what, 12 years ago? 2008? Yeah. It's, oh, it's been a minute. And over, <laughs> I mean, what, we started doing music videos back yeah it, it was well we all worked for different production companies beforehand and we were all kind of just tired of having bosses and we said okay well let's let's kind of strike out on our own and uh the really the last decade or so has been kind of a combination of working on uh client jobs uh from anything from visual effects to uh filming to sound design and music and uh, advertising and our own kind of in-house uh, films, short films, trailers, proof of concept stuff, anything that we just kind of feel like doing. And, uh, that's it's like a big cycle. Been, we'll get like burnout and then be like, we should probably do something that is fun and for us <laughs> and then jump on some sort of concept. And then that reinvigorates us to go back and work on more non, <laughs> non us stuff. Absolutely. And it's, it's it kind of opens up to other potential other like jobs as well because sometimes we can work on something on our own that we never would have gotten hired to do in the first place and we put it out there and hopefully it makes an impact and then all of a sudden people want oh hey you did this for for on that film can you do it for our film too so that's yeah, a good example like Jeff, of that because we did what tons of motion capture which we had never done mm -hmm. before <laughs> which yeah. led us to finding a creative way to do the motion capture that didn't involve doing a bunch of cameras so we would not have done that if it had not been for Metroid. Absolutely. So yeah, that's that's pretty much what Rainfall is all about. Uh, cool. So um, Metroid: The Sky Calls was created thanks to winning votes from uh, Rainfall's fantasy filmmaking project poll, uh, which is something that Shine Spark has campaigned for uh, heavily at the time. Uh, but what made you decide to shortlist Metroid as a choice in the first place? It. It wasn't entirely up to us. We started off with a uh, we we did a video where we invited people to submit their ideas because we wanted to do another another short film based on something, and because we had we've done numerous uh, productions in the past. We did a Wonder Woman short. We did a Legend of Zelda short, and we were really interested in doing another one. But we thought it'd be fun to open it up and have uh, people come in and suggest and then vote. So the first phase of that was people sending in their their suggestions and we got hundreds and hundreds of suggestions from uh video games to books to just just everything and uh you know we narrowed it down to the ones that we thought had the most potential the ones that we would be the most excited about doing uh that would do the, the best job on and uh ones that we just thought people would enjoy seeing so metroid was was uh, very high on that list I feel like we were like stuck in our own little uh, bubble in terms of which ones we would pick. So when we were like, well, let's see what other franchises like other people want to want to see. Maybe 
that'll throw something that we hadn't expected. And there were a number of, of kind of like higher choices that we were like, oh man, I never even thought of that and, or that would be kind of fun to do, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we were, it was, it was really exciting to, to watch that process. And then, uh, uh, yeah, just seeing the, w- once we shifted to phase two, which was the actual voting, uh, I think there was a top five. And then we, I think we gave around a week or two for votes to come in and it was, it was just neck and neck there for a while. It was a really fun process to watch. We trimmed it down to different genres, too, because like I think we didn't want them all to be like high fantasy. Like, you know, I mean, there was I think Metroid might have been the only kind of like science fiction. I think so. I think one of the Final Fantasy uh, periods, one that was like more. And yeah, I think six got two got picked, too. Right. Or I guess Japan, two not whatever. Uh, (laughs) I think the U.S., the U.S. to the uh, Japan four. Four. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been cool with Max, but yeah, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, well, what's funny is looking back on that list is so many films. There were there were uh, characters or uh, properties on there that have since become films. Like I think Black Panther was on there, and I think Captain Marvel was on there as well. Yeah. So uh, which, it's which with Wonder Woman, we're no short of, of like releasing something that's fan made moments before the real thing is announced. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> I think I. I think I believe they announced that Winter One was being added to Batman v Superman two weeks after our short came out, which is the the, the, just the weirdest timing. It's really convenient, isn't it? Wow. <laughs> and the whole outfit debacle too, man. I mean, there was a number of backlash about how their costume did have no color in it and seemed very like whatever uninspired, and then referenced ours, which was not. <laughs> that must that must feel so weird <laughs> to have your your fan thing referenced by by that many people. So Metroid wasn't even on wasn't on your internal shortlist at all. Oh, it was. That was my pick. Oh, it was. Oh, that was your <laughs> yeah. pick. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I, I really didn't want to. Think... Go ahead. Go ahead. I was saying I really wanted to do something science fiction related just for the kind of excitement of doing the sound design portion of it. Just because you know with the Zelda stuff, a lot of that was just. And same with Wonder Woman, and most of it was just fully driven sound, real real recordings of things like swords hitting and things whipping by. And so, you know, Metroid actually had a bigger playground of playing around with stranger sounds. So Yeah, and it was a lot more narrative too, which is is fun because we hadn't done something quite that story driven in a while. Yeah, and you were like, I really want to make a, a narrative out of this, as opposed to like, mm-hmm. you know, Wonder Woman and Zelda were both pitched as trailers which means we didn't we just had to come up with like vignette moments it didn't really have to be like a cohesive storyline and then yeah we wanted to push it with the with the new with the up with the with metroid the third one yep so actually i think you've you've touched on a couple of our of our next quest of our next question in there but like obviously the movie pays homage to a lot of classic sci-fi movies and you know you get like a lot of vibes of stuff like alien in there which is obviously the inspiration behind the metroid franchise in the first place um and it obviously looks and feels like a classic movie from that era and the way it was filmed and presented and sounds the part thanks to the terrific score by jeff so was creating a movie in the style of a classic sci-fi movie was that always the approach you had when you were thinking about having metroid on that shortlist no uh that that came a little bit later uh the, the film took a long time to make. It was a little over a year uh, from choosing the the subject to releasing it. Um, part of that was due to like, just 2014, 2015 were insanely busy years for us uh, at Rainfall. So we didn't have a lot of additional time to work on it. But also, uh, it took us a while just to find the right angle on the adaptation. Um, Jeff and I, I remember we, we sat down at one point and we 
we sketched out a story that was more traditional, more what you would traditionally think of as a um, live action Metroid. It was a bit more action, action packed. There was more fighting aliens and that kind of stuff. I think Ridley was in there and mother brain and uh, it was, it was cool, but I don't, there was something about so much. It was so much. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think what it was, it was just too expected. It was, we didn't want to do something like it's, it's a, it's a fan film. If you're going to do it, it's not an official thing. If, if, if a, a studio is going to go out and make this film, it's going to be a certain way and it may be awesome. We have no idea because hopefully someday we'll know, but you know, we're, we're making a fan film so we can do whatever we want. And I, I, I think it's a missed opportunity if you don't kind of make it the film that you want to see. And we had, we had a short list of stuff we absolutely wanted in there too, though, like things that mm-hmm. we knew that we wanted and things that we thought people wanted, like, we're like, well, she's got to morph into the ball. There has to be Chozo in it. Like there, there was just things we needed to check off. Yeah. So the question was just presentation. How, how does it, how does the film feel? How does it all come together? And there originally was more, it was more modern and more, uh, you know, if you, you know, if you watch any like the cutscenes from, I don't know, other M or something is the technology is more like, you know, touch screens and holograms and just uh, more we, what you would expect from that, or even like any of the prime games. Uh, and I think if I remember correctly, like just, I was working late one night and I, I was waiting on client notes for something and I just decided to start rewatching uh, 2001 and I was watching it and I was watching just like the wonderful uh, tech that was you know, looked futuristic for the time, but now has that wonderful retro sci-fi feel to it and the pacing and the look and the sound and everything. And, uh, it just kind of hit me like, wow, this is to me. Cause I mean, I, I grew up on the original Metroid games. That's kind of how I associate that world and that story more, kind of more retro than futuristic. And, uh, I think I quickly hacked together a little animatic or something. And I sent it to Jeff and to Jesse, our other rainfall partner, with some, I think, I think I even like tempted it to, uh, what is it? Also Sprock Tharathustro. Um, I always mispronounce that uh, from that, uh, Kubrick used in 2001. Yeah. There's and, no way I'm going to pronounce it, but that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I think we all agree like that was the way to go. Cause it, it, it had this wonderful charm to it and even adding in like like the, the real film grain and, and adding the, the grunge factor to it to make it look like it was unearthed and, and remastered and, and was, you know, maybe on film sitting in a, uh, a wet basement for 20 years. And we were working on doing tech development for how to make whatever 16 and 35 mil grain look good for that venom project and you had yeah. been like recording real grain up against a wall just so we could like check and see if the grain looked the same as like any plugins to make sure it was like authentic yeah. enough yeah we had hours <laughs> of digitized uh 16 millimeter grain uh so it <laughs> could at least use we could use that and not uh, like jeff said just rely on plugins or just your, yeah, your standard because YouTube compression loves 16 millimeter grain. Oh, <laughs> I can imagine. That was awful. Trying to, at the, at the very end, trying to output it and figure out the right bit rate. And yeah, just so that the, all, all that grain and all that detail wouldn't just turn to mush. I think your decision to like push it to be like, look, we're going to do this retro style and have this specific look like really helped to make 
it ours in terms of its like identity and to mitigate any kind of, cause I mean, you can't do a fan project without criticism for sure. And it was just like, well, look, like this is the type of film we're going to make. This is our goal. Like it has a clear vision. It's not just us trying to slap together a bunch of Metroid stuff. So like, hopefully you like it, but this is the world that our version is going to live in. Yeah. We didn't want it to feel like, Hey, this is our pitch for a Metroid movie. Like this is what we want to try to do. Like, no, this is, this is how we, like we would love to see a full length film done in the style, maybe not quite so extreme, but uh, that I think more just in terms of, of like the pacing and and the framing and the aesthetic of it, uh, you know, you can play the original Metroid game and just feel the, the influence of those films, whether it's alien or, or, or even, uh, even 2001, there is that, that isolation, that loneliness that comes with uh those early levels especially and it's once you get into action once once things you know once the lasers start flying then you you lose that and so i think we just whatever we did we wanted to hang on to that feeling of exploration and isolation as much as possible you can put smokestacks on that on that gunship just do like a like a full like a full retro version you know, okay. a, a steampunk version we could do that i was gonna say you're you're erring towards steampunk now yeah, no. scary. <laughs> we were never like blimp or something yeah. <laughs> the, the samus zeppelin i'm sure there's yeah. been a steampunk metroid fan art or costume made I, i'm gonna have to google that later almost definitely yeah oh there's no way it doesn't exist like that there's got to be like a samus with a jetpack <laughs> sam you were responsible for directing the movie and writing the script for sky calls the plot of the movie involves samus investigating a deep signal from within the planet and discovers that it's a message left for her by the chozo race so what made you decide to take an original story for samus instead of just adapting an existing adventure such as like the original metroid or super metroid or even other m Mm -hmm. well we as as jeff mentioned there were elements that we knew that we needed to to have in there and the i i don't think at a, adapting one of the previous game stories was all that interesting to us because we didn't want to we kind of there's already a lot of responsibility on portraying the character in the world correctly uh and if we were just doing like a five ten minute short then that's a really short amount of time to adapt one of the uh, one of those official stories so we thought it would most benefit from uh, something original that would that's ta- tailor made for that runtime, and uh, it would allow us to kind of play around a bit more with the with the lore, while hopefully not going against any of the established canon. Cool. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about the score and a little bit more uh, with Jeff, if I may. Uh, you created a really fitting score for the movie that uh, added to the tension and suspense and mystery of Samus's adventure, I felt, uh, throughout the movie uh, with a combination of orchestra and electronic synths. Uh, what was it like to create a score for a Metroid movie and how did that come together? Well, thank you <laughs> for, for starters. Uh, I mean, that's a that's a good question because i think that current there's a lot of trend for like triple a games in general especially like those those mid-2000 titles to like really bank on this whole like cinematic experience crap and trying to make kind of disposable scores instead of really where a lot of these games came from with these like really iconic themes and no orchestra elements um but we were trying to do a film and we're trying to do one that was 
very much in a specific style that came from score. So I like, well, I think you had kind of storyboarded out a first animatic of the ship, like coming out over the planet. And you were like, uh, this is kind of what I'm thinking for like, and it was like that top down shot where the, uh, where, where the gunship was just like, kind of like cruising over the, sh- uh, the planet. Right. And I was like, well, I'm going to try to put together some atmospherics and see how it sounds. And, you know, I compl- I'd started with it being like fully electronic and like trying to like, just make it as kind of swellingly and digital as possible so that it could be pushed more into that kind of like video game synth direction. And then just started putting just dissonant tones of just like really spooky, scary stuff that was very much more like monolith sequence in 2001 and just like those creepy, eerie scenes, aliens, all that stuff. And it started to come together and we just kind of dug into themes. We were like, we wanted this to have themes. <laughs> Sam and I are really big crit- criticism of modern movies where there's like not really iconic motives and themes that go on for scenes and characters. Um, yeah, I think that the Marvel movies do, but I, I like absolutely cannot stand the Marvel themes, which is too bad because it's like one of my favorite composers. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it really, it just started coming together. I was going to say, well, like what, what you were saying about kind of layering in atmospherics and, and drones and all those, those eerie sounds, what, what you found that worked so well is laying those in as a bed and then throwing some very lightly, some of those original Metroid themes over it worked incredibly well. Uh, even just the, the, the little three notes do, do, do really uh, just works with that kind of style. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So like at the, the last, uh, the last reel that plays is like a complete shout out to Goldsmith and like very much done in that like kind of like big Star Trek kind of style. And then as it's like petering out, you know, we bring in that original, you know, four note theme just to kind of interlude like, you know, I don't know. In case we were going to do another one, we wanted to have kind of like a fun bridge and a, and a nice cliffhanger at the end of it, both from the music standpoint you know, connecting with the film mm-hmm. and with the actual original score or just the, with the original kind of like melodies you're familiar with. And we did that with the sound design too. Like I remember we, we, we took like, uh, well, like when she shoots her rockets and like the ball transformation, there's a lot of like the original sound that's processed in a way and then complete new sound design that we like kind of merged with it just because we wanted to bring I don't know, just like shout out like, hey, look, like we are, we are aware of this original stuff. We really care about this original stuff and want to do it justice. But at the same token, we want to like kind of push it and do something with it at the same time. Yeah, it was almost something you, you added a, a bit more of a mechanical aspect to a lot of Samus's sounds that uh, are, are not quite, uh, I don't know, not quite with involved in the original design or, or even like say like from the prime games that had more sophisticated yeah. sound design. So yeah, add, because we were going with that more retro style, adding in the really like the gears and like, even like the, I love, I love the heavy foot stomps that you feel the weight of the suit. It, it was coincidental timing. Cause we had just, I had just recorded a bunch of like uh, our buddy had a, a metal shop and we went there and just like, just beat the, ever loving hell out of this enormous pieces of metal on each other and just had all this like really great like clattering source to pull from and i think i made some joke with you about like it'd be funny to have this like horrible metal sounds compressing down with like gore sounds as she like morphs into her ball because like you know how does she fit in there you know like (laughs) (laughs) one of the biggest mysteries um yeah series right there just a horrible scream every time so we Uh, had what did you do I was going to say, what did you do with those, with those big water jugs? 
Oh, right. Uh, that was for the uh, sequence where the ship goes through the, like, uh, whatever, portal or wormhole. Uh, we had two of these huge empty water jugs that I had lying around and we have uh, these piezoelectric mics which are like contact microphones and I wanted the ship to have this whole like kind of like fly apart on the seams kind of like sensation to it so we had put the mics together and started just rattling the jugs and banging them together and, and it gives that whole like submarine kind of like uh, metal creaking but not kind of like thundering sound and so we that was one layer that was in there that whole sequence had so much stuff going on uh, just to give it such a spooky, spooky thing. And then I started putting that cadence of the, uh, like these banging timpanis and like almost like just straightened like an industrial beat to it. Cause it was just like driving through the whole thing. And, uh, that's the, I, one of my favorite sequences for sure. Yeah. Same here. So can you tell us a bit how you even, you know, go through that process of scoring for a movie like the sky calls? I know. Big question today, sorry. <laughs> well, no, it's a great question. I think that there's the there's a bunch of like traditional ways of approaching it, which we definitely did. And then there were some like kind of non-standard ways just because of how the production of Metroid came together because it's very non-linear. Um, so like, you know, Sam will block off sequences that he thinks need music or would benefit from it in you know, what are called reels. So we'll have like a, a short sequence that, for example, like when she first falls into the Chosa ruins and it's like right after this kind of like loud tunnel sequence in the morph ball and then it kind of like plops into this whole cavern. And like we knew that we wanted a shift in kind of tone there because everything was scary up to that point, but we didn't want the Chozo to really be scary, but at the same time they needed to be like terrifying. So <laughs> it's like a... Uh, <laughs> clash. So, but you know, we wanted that sequence to open up with something that was like really kind of like more tender romantic. So like I came up with this piano cue and sent it to Sam and Sam was like, this is great. I love it. Let's kind of build it out. So I converted that and made it more string based. So it had more of a, a kind of like flowing emotional feel to it. And that, and that was one reel there. And there's the whole sequence where she actually talks to the Chozo and that was a different reel block. So we knew that the challenges for both that sequence and the sequence afterwards had to have two different kind of like musical tones to it. Um, and the one where she's speaking to the Chozo also had to be different just because there was dialogue in it. And we knew that we wanted the dialogue to be processed in a way to be, I don't know, uh, extra cool just so that it was clear that the her talking to herself was the Chozo and not her like that was a real concern that people were just mm. going to be confused that like just like why is she talking to herself <laughs> yeah there was it was an early idea idea that that sounded really great on paper and when we were getting into it uh, and it was all written carefully so that her early uh like audio log that she records it, you know the idea is that it's intercepted and re-edited because the Chozo can't communicate with her directly. So they have to re-edit what she said just to say back to her to give her information. Uh, and that was hard to do. We went through a lot of iterations of that uh, and showed it to people so that uh, hope we had as much confidence as we could that people would understand what was happening. It was like, we had this as soon as it hit paper, we were like, that's such a cool idea. <clears throat> and then like, like Sam said, the first test came out and we were like, uh-oh. <laughs> like, this is going to confuse people. Now, you guys had touched on it earlier, um, but when you were composing the score for Sky Calls, how much of it was informed by the sound design of the Metroid games, and which is heavily based on atmosphere rather than using a full orchestra? So there were like 
the key key moments that we knew we were going to pull like sound from the original game so that people could hear that call out. Like I, I think I mentioned like the rocket sound and some, some of the other like interface UI stuff. We wanted that to be like a hundred percent like, Oh, maybe you're playing the game, but not really kind of thing. Um, and then we like kind of went through, I think mostly super Metroid and listened to a lot of the original like levels. And when you'd move into a new zone and kind of just like, cause uh, to me, that's what I loved so much about those early kind of the NES and Super Nintendo versions of the game is that the environments, none of them really had like music. They just had like memorable sound design atmosphere. And we use that as kind of like a reference bed to be like, well, okay, when she's in space, it should have kind of this kind of like an atmosphere to it. And then when she gets down to the planet, we can maybe change it to like this kind of an atmosphere. And then on top of that, we started to try to build a score as well. So, you know, you were kind of carried through the environments by the different bases of the sound design. And then you were kind of led through all the scenes from kind of like an orchestrated standpoint where the more traditional instruments kind of like help pull you through that. Yeah. What I, I think something we talked about early on was how much we loved in the original games that this, the sound design and the music were kind of in many cases, one and the same. It was, it was atmosphere. There would be atmospheric tunes with a little bit of melody here and there, but it was hard to say whether that was sound design or score. Uh, so I, I, lo- I, I love that kind of stuff when you can't really tell what the, what the difference is. And uh, that's something that I think Jeff did a really great, great job of incorporating. Very cool. Um, so when it comes to video games, so as an example, uh, Metroid Prime 3 Corruption uh, sort of experimented with a partially orchestrated score uh, while in like compared to other M, it was recorded entirely by orchestra. Um, but in your experience with composing music, do you think Metroid is better served by a synthesized or ensemble score? Oof. <laughs> I mean, I think it's it, it's scene and content dependent, right? I mean, if you look mm-hmm. like Shadow of the Colossus, is like a a piece of art that like really benefits from incredible game absolutely right and the score is just unbelievable like uh and and they do a really good job of knowing when it's going to be really a piece of music when it's going to be more atmosphere you know when you're exploring Uh the world it's very atmospheric and then you know it's almost kind of like a music video when you hit one of the colossi it switches and it it starts playing like music um and i think that really benefits it well i think like another example more contemporarily is risk of rain 2 if anybody's familiar with that um the score there is absolutely unbelievable and it's just it's so weird and like disconnected and funky but in its sense it creates a a package that works completely and in the some of its parts are better because of it and i think that's kind of one of the follies that a lot of bigger franchises are falling into when their score gets made and it's not so much that it is synthesized or that it's orchestrated it's the fact that it's less inspired where they're just trying to make what people think that uh, a game like that should have or sound like as opposed to trying to make the best possible music for what the style of that actual game is yeah not not everything needs to sound like a big triple a blockbuster movie and sometimes video games fall into that trap where it's like you know it was the simplicity of the original games so the earlier scores that we loved so it's a you don't need to overscore it you can almost feel the like director like director producer that's on it being like well it needs to be needs to be really big and cinematic like this is a moment where like big cinematic stuff is happening so make it sound big and cinematic and i think that's a bad goal like it should be like well what's going on in the scene like 
what kind of sound can be applied to that to really help push that forward? So I don't think a lot of the modern Metroid games have good scores. <laughs> Bold claim, yeah. I love uh, I love the Prime One score. There's a lot. I still listen to a lot of uh, those tracks. Um, the I don't have as clear of a memory of, of Prime Two and Three, except for like the mo- doing like the motion controls in Three. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I, th- I think less is more when it comes to this franchise and, um, I, I didn't play the other M. I just kind of watched, I, I watched a lot of gameplay footage from it and, and certainly saw a lot of, uh, uh, people's responses to it. It was quite polarizing, but, uh, that one lent heavily on the cinematic quality. I think it really depends on what the new prime or the new Metroid game is going to be like from a style standpoint right like just completely and if they if they lock it in like doom's a good example right uh it's a god gordon mick gordon mick gordon's uh score for that like uh, super iconic now and there you're looking at a franchise where they were so afraid to kind of touch base on like metal and like kind of guitar tar driven stuff and it's a project where they could have just been like we'll make it metal and make it sound like doom and then it would have been kind of like a a triple a disaster version of what is actually done which is where they tried to find well what about making it guitar what about it is doom and how can you push that to like 11 which is what was done and that score is you know obviously pretty iconic now people refer to it as being one of the better conversions of like an old style doom sound and making it into something new so like if they did that with metroid and when when the new metroid game comes out in another 15 years or whatever <laughs> they, uh yeah i really hope that they they they've taken the time to make it really iconic and figure out a way to to make it really connect with whatever the game material is so death metal got it yeah for sure <laughs> yeah. just get that metal choir back from doom eternal get them to record some some metroid stuff yeah right <laughs> Fiona Mick Gordon's soundtrack for Doom is outstanding. But I think he's just he's really good at finding, as you said, with um with what you guys did with Sky Cause, he's really good at finding those bits that work and then how do you bring them forward and stuff. But yeah, no, really good. Um yeah. Tangent, I had done a uh the Doctor Who theme really synced up well with one of the tracks from the the first of his Doom games, and I had completely mashed him up and and sent it to him and was like, hey, like don't sue me, but look, it's like literally the same key. <laughs> and uh, it got a little traction on Reddit and he he responded and he was just like, That's hilarious. My wife said the same thing, and here you did it. And I was just like, I, I heard it too. <laughs> Brilliant. Didn't I make a little logo for that? Like a Doctor Doom I did. logo for that? Yeah. yeah. I was like, I need to figure out how to put the TARDIS in with this logo can you do it and you sent over this like absolutely perfect icon for it oh my god yeah doom guy's face on the board yes do it um <laughs> i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to try that down after this um okay so let's move away from the from the music a little bit um obviously the character of samus was made possible for the movie by america young providing motion capture and stunt work and jessica chobot for the live action parts bringing the iconic character to life so what was it like working with with those guys and like sort of bringing your vision of samus to life well it was i was lucky that uh that both jessica and america are were huge fans of of samus and they each brought their own kind of interpretation of the character which is something that i really liked about about 
the character coming to life through two different performances, kind of emerging as one. And uh, yeah, Jessica, I knew Jessica for a while. I knew, I knew she loved the Samus character in the Metroid games. And I knew this was something she would uh, hopefully really jump at. And uh, with America, America is amazing. She's an amazing uh, multi-hyphenate. She's a director, writer, actor, stunt person. And she has done so much motion capture work that it was wonderful just being able to, she just kind of came by, suited up and was ready to go. She didn't need any explanation on how the process worked. Uh, and uh, she's done so many video games before. And uh, in fact, I think the new, um, I forget what it's called, Arkham, not Arkham Knights, whatever the new uh, Batman game is where you can play as Batgirl. Uh, she is, did the mocap and the voice of Batgirl. So she is huh, she's cool. a pro. And uh, so it was just really fun working with them both to to figure this out. Because, I mean, part of the, the challenge with the mocap is that even though uh, America was wearing this you know, very uh, slim uh, bodysuit for the motion capture. She still had to walk and still had to move like she was wearing the, you know, the giant various suit. And uh, we helped her a little bit. We had this giant, hilarious-looking styrofoam tube that we put on her arm <laughs> to represent the gun <laughs> so that she could kind of feel it. So when she puts her hand on it, it doesn't – like the mocap wouldn't go through the gun. And uh, uh, so using that – and then we created – we actually did all the motion capture at a friend's gym that he owned in Burbank because uh, we had – it was a lot of space and there's a lot of padding everywhere. And we could take all these bits of workout equipment and create this whole jungle gym for her to play around and climb over rocks or do whatever uh, she was supposed to do in the scene. And so we so used accelerometers and so we didn't have to worry about the cameras like obscuring anything. What was amazing was that you know, we looked for a long time, for several months, for the best motion capture solution that we could afford. There's an innumerable amount of places in LA that you can do this, but it costs quite a lot to rent the stage, to rent the, uh, to hire the crew, and then to do all of the data conversion after the fact. Uh, so we're looking around. Everything was way out of our budget because you know we're just funding this ourselves. And mm -hmm. finally came upon this company, uh, I believe they were called Mobile Mocap. And they come, they came to us. They had an entirely contained system that was just one computer and the jumpsuit. There was no additional sensors or a cage that had to be built. Uh, and it gave us so much freedom to be able to kind of do whatever we wanted. At one point, to get uh, Samus running, uh, America just ran out the gym onto the sidewalk and ran down the sidewalk and she just ran until she was out of range of the computer. And that's not something we would have been able to do necessarily if we were in a small volume. So the process was really good. And we were so nervous up to that point. We had no idea if any of this would actually work. And it wasn't until after the mocap day and uh, we all the data was uh, translated so that we could then uh, put it, attach it to the mesh of the 3D model and then open it up and actually watch the animation process. As Jeff mentioned earlier, we had never done mocap before. Uh, this is not something we had experience in. So uh, we just had no idea if it was going to work. So once we opened these files and started seeing <laughs> everything motion, I think we all just <laughs> breathed an enormous sigh of relief. Like, I, I think we might have a film here. 
<laughs> Not to say that it wasn't without like some concern, because there was definitely the process of converting the data to to get the best kind of convincing exact replication of what America had done, which some of the performances mm. like were amazing. And then you'd look at the mocap and it was like just off and you're like, damn. <laughs> so like, you know, we'd have to go and tweak some of them. Yeah, or like there'd be like one keyframe where all of a sudden her arm is just going through her chest. Uh, right. The the leg is Uh-oh. pointed straight up, uh, and so but that's normal. Okay. <laughs> that's normal with mo with motion capture uh, work. Like this playing a rock star game. <laughs> <laughs> throwing throwing some shade here today. What? Never. That's that's remarkable, babe. <laughs> Not rock stars, buggy games. Um, your your process. <laughs> Or both, I guess, a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, uh, rounding it back, but that's that was it was because uh, both Jessica and America made the process for us so easy that that the whole post production phase went so well. So uh, it was just it was great working with them. To throw it back to <laughs> Jessica, you know, we were trying to find a really cool way to do the in helmet stuff. Like this was a big challenge because we were like, well, how do we make this kind of look cool but not rip off anything? Um, and we had gotten a camera stabilization plugin that we were kind of using on a different project to do uh, just compositing of background stuff. And Sam had flipped it around and was just like, well, I'm going to stabilize her eyes. <laughs> and uh, it made for what the effect, which is great, I think. Um, it kind of locks her head in position so that, you know, you can, there can be motion around it, but it still feels like it's kind of in a contained environment, which they went on. Yeah. I think the, the first it or the new it movies used it in that like terrifying dancing scene at the end where he's like stabilized and everything around him is still moving. Cause we didn't want it to look like Iron Man, but at the same token, it like was going to have to look a little bit like Iron Man. Cause you're inside of like a hologram helmet. So <laughs> Yeah, and I mean that was originally kind of inspired by the first Prime game, anyway. Uh, True, but yeah, I mean I think if I remember correctly, we actually have our our other uh, Rainfall partner Jesse to thank for that because I think in one of our last reviews, I think it was one of the last times we were we were like a week away, I think, from releasing, and we hadn't done that stabilization, so her head was kind of floating in frame quite a lot, and uh, Jesse, who was not in VFX, said, you know what. The, there's something off. There's something not right about this. And uh, so, I, I mean, I I was like, oh, God, I don't want to go back. There were so many of those shots. I did not want to have to go through all of them all. But it was it was absolutely worth the effort. And, and those uh, shots pushed the storyline the whole way. I mean, they were the only ways that we could really get any dialogue into it. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's uh, one. it helped add a little Easter egg to uh, uh, in, in the prime games when you're in the first person mode. So there, if you do something like if, if an explosion goes off close to you or something bright happens, you see a quick reflection of Samus in the visor. And so we did that. And there's a few moments where we had, uh, we, if you're looking through uh, the visor, you'll see Jessica's face reflected in it. So that's just a little, mm-hmm. little way to, to throw in one of the Easter eggs. Yeah. There's a handful of Easter eggs in there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The character of Samus has predominantly been a mute character throughout the series. Um, so was there ever a point that you decided to not give Samus a voice? I know you'd mentioned uh, just a minute ago being able to include the dialogue. Was that something you wanted to do from the beginning? Or did you think about like originally just having her not speak kind of like in the games? It's possible we considered it near the beginning, but once we... Yeah, I don't remember... Yeah, I think when we came up with that idea for like the audio log and then recutting it, we, we at that point is like, well, we have to have dialogue. And 
it's Samus is different to me, different than like a character like Link, where it kind of makes sense that like I it's I have a really hard time imagining Link speaking in a game or a film adaptation. Uh, it just wouldn't seem right. It kind of almost makes sense that he would be, even though technically Link is speaking in the game because characters respond to him like he just said something. Um, to me, Sam is a different word. It would make total sense uh, that she would be speaking. So uh, at that point, it was just, okay, what do we do? What's the, how, what's the best way to to uh, represent her in that way? Um, and at that point, I just I left it to to Jessica. That, that, was, that was her job. And uh, I, I think we there there was something especially to the the vocalization, like when she's getting hit or she's falling or something, just hearing those little grunts or hearing those those little human noises in there uh, helps so much. Just remind you that there's a person in that suit, and that works really well for me. That works well in a visual like film way where the video games are, you know, are operating on a different scale. I mean, I know they, they went, uh, uh, with their own thing for other M, but, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to remember in, in super Metroid when she got hurt, did she make, did they have a little noise for that? I think they did they have a little noise. Yeah. It's more of a bloop noise, yeah. isn't it though? It's not really a, but, but in prime, they did have the grunts and stuff. Yeah. I think that was done by, um, who is it done by now? Um, I think it was, was it Jennifer Hale? Jennifer Hale, yeah. That's oh, was correct. it? Oh, it was Rimsby, oh, uh, yeah. She's yeah. had quite a career. I think I think you look at the the origins are like, you know, they they had no memory to put dialogue. I think that the decision to not have these characters like Link and, and Samus like speak was more of a limitation of the fact that you have this tiny 8-bit sprite or whatever and don't have any ability to put vocalization to it. You know, that there are you're using real actors and characters now as the games get more and more you know realistic in terms of the graphics i think it's inevitable that they're going to break those rules a little bit now yeah with probably having every intent to have those characters speak when they were originally created it's just like well we can't do it now and then oh well now it's a thing they don't speak so let's just roll with it (laughs) well we know nintendo have rolled back and like when they re-released a bunch of snes games for the gba like with link to the past and stuff they added the ocarina of time grunts to link and stuff there you go yeah yeah, they're not against it (laughs) Yeah, and that's I mean, that makes sense. It and, and it was interesting to see, like with um, uh, Breath of the Wild, where they they decided to populate Hyrule with speaking characters, like in way more than they ever had before. Uh, so that called into more contrast the fact that Link wasn't speaking, and uh, that I, I think your mileage may vary on that. I thought it worked well that that Link came off as more of someone who just doesn't talk. Uh, just because he's surrounded by all these other interesting characters. So I don't know, a lot of ways to go with it. I think it also separates the player as the character too, because it's just like, well, you're the weird one that doesn't talk. And of course you're the person who's actually playing him. So it's like, (laughs) all right, cool. Like there's something different about me as that character that makes it the player, you know? That you just have like the microphone and the switch turn on. So you just like speak into it and then your voice (laughs) comes out of Link's mouth. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we 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 tried to make as many decisions that wouldn't piss off Nintendo because we didn't want them to like suddenly send us a message that was like you need to take this down. We really wanted to do 
as much justice to the what we were making because you know there are other projects that have been shut down by Nintendo you know all over the internet and uh, including other Metroid ones. We know they saw it. We saw the traffic. So, wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we've we've been around the block enough with with these like fan film projects that we try to follow certain rules. And one like number one rule is is respect the property. And it, you know, the, most of the other things that we've seen that got shut down either are ones that went so crazy with the adaptation that uh, Nintendo's like, okay, we have to shut this down because we feel this is harming the IP. Yeah. Uh, or they're monetizing. There's some that's like, or like maybe like kickstarting or something like that. And like, no, you, you can't make money off of this kind of thing. It's like, you can try, but you have to just always have that respect in mind that you're playing in someone else's playground and yeah. they have, they have full right to kick you out. So be a good guest. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's my rule. They can take their ball and go home. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, pretty much. And Nintendo loves to be that bully on the playground sometimes. So. <laughs> well, we might have gone off on a bit of a tangent there, but I'll, I'll go on to the next question. Um, <laughs> I think you've already kind of answered this anyway, because I'm, I'm sure you've, you've put a lot of research into it. But but how much research actually went into the series before making the Sky Course? Did you like play through all of the games? Did you go as far as reading the manga? Did you look at like what fans um, you know perceived Samus to be or, or the series to be? And, and I was just curious how much went into that. Oh, I, like I said, I grew up with the games. There wasn't a lot of, I didn't necessarily have to go back to, to be reminded of uh, a lot of things because uh, I wanted to hang on to that feeling that I had as a kid playing them. And I didn't want to necessarily spoil that uh, by imposing my, my adult self on that. But that mm. said, I did go, I, uh, it had been a long time since I played Super Metroid. And at that time, at that time, I had a Wii U, so I, I believe Super Metroid is available to download for that. Um, yeah. So it was it was fun to to play that again on a on a big t, uh, big TV with surround sound, and uh, just kind of experience that all over again. And I think, if I remember correctly, we did a day where I think the three of us sat down and we played some of that, and we played some some of the Prime games, and we just kind of talked about the, the aspects that we liked about it and what what was working for us and it's like, okay, this, we need this or that in the film. Um, I had read the manga before. I, I think I went back to check it out again because it dealt so much with, with uh, Samus and the Chozo. Mm. Um, but it, it was mostly like we wanted to, we wanted to stick to Canon as much as possible, but still, as I mentioned, because this is an unofficial film, this is our own thing. We wanted to do our own, uh, take on it so i didn't, yeah. didn't want to to be in too influenced by that um because mm -hmm. we knew you know it's people are going to you know, there's going to be people who are not going to like it no matter what and that's totally cool uh, there's going to be, be people who think it doesn't stick close enough to the stories and that's totally cool uh but if you have an open mind and you just want to want to see one person's or a group of persons uh take adaptation on it then uh, hopefully it's something that can be enjoyed sure so obviously you said before that you were working within within the budget especially with the like mocap and stuff but if you had a larger budget and even more time and great resources how much further do you think you would have pushed your vision do you think you would have chucked in a ridley fight just just for the sake of it <laughs> post-credit sequence 
Yeah. <laughs> and who would play Ridley as well? That's a good question. <laughs> and why is it Samuel L. Jackson? Definitely Jeff, Jeff's cat would play Ridley yeah. for sure. <laughs> Just the devil incarnate. She is a mean little little thing. Um, <laughs> honestly, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if, if all that much would have changed if we had a bigger budget. Uh, I think money can ruin a project too because we were really trying to make whatever we could out of what we had <laughs> you start to have too many options and you lose focus on yeah limitations are yeah. great uh, lim- limitations are awesome having said that <laughs> <laughs> no honestly i can't really think like we 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 got everything that we needed on on we had one day of mocap and we got everything we needed i think we even finished early um and uh we had we had everything we needed with our actors and we really just did one day of live action stuff and everything else was just computer time and yeah maybe uh, like an environmental artist bringing on like a little bit of extra help for like doing bringing in the mm-hmm. character animation and, and creating environments not that any of them were bad at all everything looked great but it's just it, it would have taken split up the labor so that we weren't doing yeah. everything <laughs> exactly yeah the uh, we did have i did bring on uh, two or three artists uh, who helped with uh, samus's gunship um, um, I think maybe the Chozo statue and I forget what else, I think some of the environmental stuff, but the, the gunship was the main one. Uh, cause that's, yeah. that was something that I wanted to look really good cause we we're going to get, be getting some really close shots on it. And, um, uh, we had some artists come in to, to work on that and did a wonderful job. Uh, I should also mention, um, uh, Azima, Azima Khan, who was actually oh, the one yeah, who modeled, Rockstar. Oh man, yeah. Uh, she modeled the Samus suit, and this is actually kind of what originally kicked off uh, the the whole process of of being able to make the film. One of the huge question once the, all the voting came in, the tallies came in, and we're like, okay, we're going to do a Metroid short. The huge question was, how do we do the suit? And uh, you know, our first thing was like, okay, can we do this practically? Can we build something? And uh, spent a couple of months. I went around. I talked to a lot of fabricators. I went to the place that uh, cons- that did the the first Iron Man suit and uh, like the, the Spider Man suit, and uh, talked to all these people. Like, what is it going to cost? What is it going to entail to build something functional? And either the costs were just astronomical, way more than than we could spend on that. <laughs> uh, and we even we looked at all other options like what if we just build a torso and like it'll work well for all the close-up shots and then for wider shots the legs are cg and like okay if we're doing that we just why not just figure out the whole mocap solution um and then the question okay how do we create the best model the best character model and we were trying all kinds of different things i wasn't seeing anything that i was really liking and then i was on the metroid subreddit one day and i saw this post by azima khan who had posted pictures of this 3d model she'd made for samus that was awesome because it was it was more anatomically proportioned uh see like a lot of the 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 more like official artwork is a bit more cartoony like a really really tiny waist like a a real human could not fit in this thing and so she made a model that she felt uh an actual woman could be in and it was awesome and so i sent her a message out of the blue like there's no way in hell what what would you 
think about helping us out with this thing and told her about the project and like two weeks went by and didn't hear anything. I'm like, okay, well that's, that's it. And then finally one day she emails me back and uh, we went back and forth for, for a little while. And then she agreed to, to help, help us out with this. And so she did a little bit more work on the suit model, sent it over. We did some tests and we're like, Oh my God, this, this is looking great. If I remember correctly, like she, she'd never worked in a capacity that was like, in a like a professional environment or doing like freelance work and this kind of, she was just a, a modeler that really had some skills and had put together this awesome model. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I feel like, you know, in, in follow-up, we used her in some other projects afterwards, but like we she did, yeah. I think Metroid really helped launch her into doing freelance work as this and becoming a, a straight up professional doing it. Well, we, we actually, That's we cool. did a little bit of work on, on the, the giant shark movie, the Meg. And she actually worked on the shark. She worked on the shark model. I thought, I thought, I thought we weren't going to talk about that. Sam. <laughs> we specifically talked about not talking about the. Bank. How can you not talk about this? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, she she helped us out on the shark model. That's amazing. One thing I noticed about the various suit, one of the first things I noticed when I was watching it is, okay, that looks like an actual human could wear this. It doesn't just look like a weird looking robot like that so i'm glad you mentioned that and i i just thought that was a great job it was a really good touch on it yeah thanks yeah she she did a wonderful job modeling it and uh, we were so excited to see that because uh, i think we we did the very first animatics we did um i had downloaded a just a free model someone had made of, of samus that i believe was based off of i think it was based off of the the other m model and uh did some real brief animations and some proof of concept stills and looking at it, it's like, Oh, this, what is wrong? What is off about this? What is wrong? And, and part of that, what were those dimensions? Because it just, it, it would look so weird cutting to a human face in there than cutting out to the wide and having this more exaggerated figure. Kind of glad it happened anyways. I mean, when we did wonder woman too, it's like we were, our specific goal was like, look, like we want to make a cool short where she's a badass. It's just like not about sexualizing her or trying to like try to get hits by having crazy sexy costume and that's why we got the best looking costume that we could and making a film that like respected that content and we wanted to do the same thing with metroid so that's uh, tying it back around to the question that's that like, we we were, we were lucky to have the resources we needed i mean part of it was that, you know we've we've worked a long time to build up our company to be able to do these things and not have it cost a ton of money like a lot of this was just us at our desks working, which doesn't cost anything except emotional stress, pride. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, so yeah, I I cannot think of a way that I, what what I would have done with a larger budget. Now the movie has reached over 3 million views on YouTube has over 66,000 likes at the time of recording. So with the movie being so well received, have you thought about making like a sequel? I know we've been asked that a lot. Um, it's not something that that we have in in the cards right now. I feel like we we tested our luck with this. Uh, you know, thankfully it was not taken down when it was released, and we were we were so grateful to see the response that it got. That uh, that's that's just something that I don't know if we can repeat or that we would dare to repeat. Mm. Um, we always talk, we're like, oh, that was cool. I mean, we even left the ending for this one open and the, you know, potential of like, well, if we do a sequel, we can carry it on. But then it seems like when we relook at that, we're like, we should probably pick something else and do 
the best we can with that as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We try to cut, we, we try to go, uh, we try to alternate between doing stuff that's more like fan based or based on something else in our own kind of original stories and stuff. So I, I think whatever we do next, next will probably be something, uh, more, more original. Uh, but you never know. Uh, I, but I, I'm at, for the time being, I'm just happy and grateful that it turned out, uh, the way it did and it got the response that it did so sam in an interview this was a while ago now with uh, cg society um you mentioned that you'd filmed in a desert uh, but it didn't really have the same feeling of a, a, a sort of threatening alien world um so it was created with cgi um how much of what we see is real and how much uh, was created uh, with the aid of computer well, let's see. Jessica's face is real, and I think that's, that's about good to it. know. I was, I was <laughs> that's, wondering. That's it. Um. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, literally, that's it. Um, uh, everything else is uh, was done in the computer. Everything. Wow. Yeah. Even the even the consoles and st- I mean, some of the consoles are very obviously stylized, and when we do like the close up shots and some of the graphics on it are deliberately stylized as well. But all the stuff in the background behind her, with her like suit hanging up, all that stuff's not. Pri- it's all CG as well. So. Well, we and uh, uh, more Easter eggs in there. Like if you look at the some of the close-ups of the the consoles of her ship, they were modeled almost exactly after the in- interior of the shuttle in two thousand one. And yeah. even the oh, the cool. like the bio readouts and some of the radars and all that stuff, all the interfaces mm-hmm. are copied directly from that, uh, just kind of met- Metroidized. Uh, and then a lot oh, of nice. those we took all of those and ran them through we hooked up a vcr to our capture card and ran all the monitor footage through those multiple times to just give yeah, that's them all just, real vcr footage to, to, to give them <laughs> uh, yeah to give them that uh, that wonderfully uh, degraded quality mm-hmm. not to say we didn't try to do it with plugins it's just like at the time like none of the plugins looked real at all and yeah, it was it's just so much more fun to do it that way you know we had these vcrs yeah <laughs> for sure yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, but yeah, no, I did do, I, I did a location scout out, uh, out in the desert and, uh, I took some footage out there and, uh, we were going to have to add so much in post to it to make it look interesting and alien, uh, and all that, that it, it seemed unnecessary, especially if we were, there's some camera moves and some things that we would not be able to get on location uh, unless it was a virtual camera. So, uh, yeah, I think we just made, made the choice to do it all virtually. Uh, I love shooting on location. I love doing live stuff. Uh, and, uh, uh for this particular project, it didn't, it didn't make sense to do that. Although it would have been really funny because one of the locations I, I scouted was Vasquez rocks. Where, Vasquez. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where, uh, Captain Kirk fought the Gorn. <laughs> that would have been an interesting Easter egg there. Oh, that would have been really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, some of the formations we did throw that in some of the rock formations in the background of some shots are modeled very much after Vasquez rocks. So we, that, that was our way of throwing that in there. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so one thing, obviously, you have mentioned that there is um, filmed footage for this that didn't make it into the final final movie. Were there any other deleted scenes or bloopers or music behind scenes footage that you'd consider ever making available for people to check out? There's not a lot of, of deleted stuff because we the process on this was so different from anything we had done before. It was more like making an animated film where we I would spend 
a night making an animatic like wireframe version of shots for a scene, cut them together. Then I'd send them to Jeff and Jesse. They would check them out. We would talk about them. Then I'd make some adjustments. And then I would only render out the one, the shots that I knew that we would need. And we'd go back and forth and iterate and we'd have really fun screening nights where the three of us would get together. Oh boy, I miss, I miss doing these things in person. Uh, get together and watch the cut Corona. of the film. Yeah. And we'd talk about what was, you know, what we thought could improve. And then I'd go back, do a new pass on the animatics and we'd do, do it all again. So it was a really fun iterative process. So there's, yeah, there's, there's like a handful of behind the, sorry, go ahead. Well, actually, you actually bring up a good point. Uh, we did actually shoot some behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, some making-of stuff that we never released. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if we will. I don't know. I'd have to go back and look at it. I don't remember anything in it being just like, oh, my, that's such a either in, in interesting behind-the-scenes look or funny enough that we were just like, this has to be included. Yeah, because I mean, it's it's you have to remember this is a fan film. This is not some big production. So like, how, we didn't we don't want to be like, oh, look how cool we are. Here's here's how we did this. Foam tube arm was pretty hilarious, though. The what? Oh, the foam tube. Yeah, the, yeah. the foam tube arm. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, we do. Yeah, we have the raw footage of, of America doing the thing, which out of context looks hilarious, especially doing it in a gym with all this foam padding everywhere. But yeah, otherwise, I don't think we we had some weird we had some funny renders of like when especially when like physics like computer physics go incredibly wrong and all of a sudden all of a sudden rocks are flying in the wrong direction. But I think when you first applied the like mocap data, it was like inverted too. So like Samus was like running around on her head with her legs like kicking in in midair. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty funny. Yep, that was a new experience. <laughs> So yeah, unfortunately, there's probably not a lot of extra stuff we can we can release, but uh, mm. uh, yeah, that's cool. Both Ronda Rousey and Brie Larson have said that they'd like to play Samus in a Metroid movie. Do you have a preferred actress to play Samus, like whether it's one of them, or is there who would you ultimately like to play Samus? I guess. Oh boy, I don't know that that would never be my call. So I. I, I hesitate to uh to make a choice i honestly i I always love it when films when major films cast unknowns in lead roles uh hi i want to play samus great (laughs) we got you're hired yay (laughs) yeah i don't i i think it's fun when when an actor comes in who you have no prior experience with and you don't you don't already associate them with other roles and they come in and just totally own the character uh, you know, like when, when Hugh Jackman came in to play Wolverine, that was so great. And, uh, it's, you can get typecast and that's what you're known as for the rest of your life. I would not mind being known as Samus for the rest of my life. I could live with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know, Jeff, what do you think? I mean, I think Charlize Theron could probably do it pretty good justice. Plus after Mad Max, she has a good, you know, experience with a robotic arm. So it's <laughs> a good show. Okay, so uh, a few years before The Sky Calls, uh, Rainfall Films made a uh, Wonder Woman short film. Uh, since then, two official Wonder Woman movies have been... Uh, I think the second one's coming out soon, isn't it? Um, well, it's out now, I'm not sure. Uh, how hopeful... Corrected. Yeah. <laughs> how hopeful are you that a, a Metroid movie could one day be made? It, it'll be made at some point. It, we're, we're at the stage now where everything is going to get made just a matter of time the super mario brothers movie has left an 
unhealable wound in Nintendo that is going to take a long time before they commit to doing feature films, I think. Well, it depends on Illuminations, Mario Brothers. Yeah, they're making like, a new one. It, yeah. A new yeah. movie's coming up. And they did a great job with Detective Pikachu. I mean, that was fantastic. And the Sonic movie is... Oh, I love the Sonic movie. Better than it was going to be, I think, before they made all yeah. of the changes. Better than it so, had any right to be, yeah. That's, yeah. Um... <laughs> So, yeah, I think like Sam said that this is an inv- inevitable thing. It's just I don't think there's a timeline that that's going to exist for it. I love how protective Nintendo has been of its properties. I really have. I really am because uh, I'm, I'm hoping that that means that once they do sell it to a studio who then hires a creative team to make it, that they only do that when they're confident that that team is going to make a great Metroid film. Right, but they got to be smart and try not to get involved. Like, find a team and have the, the trust to have them take care of it. Because you know, I think if the suits try to get involved and start puppeteering or or making calls based on the creative direction, it's going to destroy it. Yeah, like video game adaptations. Like, there's a reason why they, they're so hard to make. And like, well, we've seen so few good video game films, and it's yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard, especially when like they're just their their own narrative experience so trying to adapt that to they're an interactive experience so when you adapt it to a non-interactive experience of just sitting in your chair and watching it it has to be good enough it has to adhere to the original property to respect it and still make it interesting more interesting than uh actually playing it you have to be able to watch a a movie of this thing and say well i'd rather be home and play the game than actually you know be watching this thing and that's that's hard to do and because of that their relationship with it is personal like you know everybody nobody's experiencing you know mario brothers or metroid for the most part in like a group experience right like you're sitting there playing the game by yourself so like what you kind of get out of it is personal to you so you have these already kind of like expectations of what you want out of that franchise so you're inevitably going to make somebody unhappy just because of uh, you know, wh- however your vision of whatever the project's going to be or however they choose to make a project is going to piss off somebody. So yeah, it's it's a lot harder to do a video game adaptation of something than it is to do other types of material, I think. Which I, I, I rather, I prefer them to try to adapt earlier games that don't have as much story, that the games that aren't as huge and cinematic as the games nowadays. Like, games nowadays you've got you know god of war you've got all these these games that are pretty much interactive movies the the production value is so high right because they want that cinematic experience yeah Yeah. (laughs) so like it's to me it's kind of pointless to do that i'm I'm curious to see like how the new new the uncharted movie is going to do because the uncharted game was already just a big movie that you were playing so which was already you know, kind of referencing it was Indiana you know, Jones, other, like Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So it's like you're, this is a circular thing. Yeah. So it's, it's the same thing with like Dead Space. They're trying to make a Dead Space movie for a long time, but the game itself was already so heavily inspired by previous movies, like horror and sci fi movies, that like, how do you do that? Right. So I don't know. It's, but that, that's why I think games like Metroid are actually great for adaptation because they're, especially the earlier games were very light on story. So you, you can do something new that the people who love the games haven't seen before. And if it's Zelda, you can just add another timeline split. <laughs> God, not, an, not another, another one. <laughs> <Hey-o>. <laughs> 
We're going to get the Metroid timeline split next. Oh, no. Where the brain lives and dies. Um, <laughs> moving away from that. So you guys, obviously, you mentioned they're about adaptation, but like you've both worked on short films, television, and video games as well, I believe. So yeah. wh- what's your favorite media to work in? Like, and, and why or like why do you enjoy each specific sort of discipline? Mm, it's a tough one. <laughs> it's a really tough one. I... I don't know. I, I, I love variety. So I, I love it. My favorite kind of week is when there's just different mediums coming in that we, that we can work on. So every day is different. Uh, it's fun. I mean, I, we can go from doing something for, uh, for a Marvel film to some, a really independent film to a, a video game, you know, Jeff doing sound design or music for a video game. And, uh, it's just cool. I love that variety. And uh, although I will say I do not miss working on music videos. Let's, we're not moving on music videos <laughs> anytime soon. Uh, I mean, from a music standpoint, I think like Sam said that each discipline has so it's so different for all of them. You know, like Sam and I did a 24 hour game jam uh, what, like last month, the month before, uh, you know, I'm working in video games, which is totally different from working in other mediums like you're you're creating music that it needs to be able to to blend into each other of using what f mod or whatever and it's the it can't be there can't be any iconic themes for the most part if it's something that needs to loop repeatedly on a on a level uh as opposed to you know a piece of music that's playing during like a boss fight which really should have iconic themes you know i do a lot of trailer music and that needs to be like it's completely independent from picture because the picture is going to be edited to it later so you're kind of like creating the storyline for the trailer and then you know short films and some of the features that i've done like you're doing it to the picture so it's the complete opposite like you need to help try to give an evolving story and play music that is going to help perpetuate the picture that exists already so uh, the variation is i think it's great needed yep you had mentioned earlier about taking an existing game and trying to make that into a movie and how hard how hard it is to do the the game justice. That being said, we loved the Ocarina of Time Zelda April Fools video that you created back in 2008. So if a game from the Zelda series were to get a movie adaptation, which one would you want it to be? Oh, I think Sam and I are going to butt heads on this one. <laughs> Spirit Tracks, definitely. Oh no! Oh. Just a just a big train <laughs> ride. Wand of Gamelan. I think Majora's Mask would be really good for it. I think that the Ooh, that'd be cool. fractured timeline stuff would cinematically is just like that would be. I mean, you're doing Groundhog Day, but Zelda, so that that sounds fun. That's actually a really good choice because it's there. There's so much interesting visuals to do in, with that, and, and and so many great characters in that story. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I, that's one of the things. Like, if if yeah, if, if if we were in charge, we'd pick something weird like that. But ah, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I I think like when we did the trailer, we we ended up mashing together elements from Link to the Past, Ocarina of Time, and Twilight Princess. And so you might have to do something like that for a first Zelda film if you want to cover all of these bases. If you want to introduce the storylines and the characters and create something really cool. Cause the Zelda games are also are, are the stories are really good, but they are very light there. There's not that much actual story there. Uh, and so you could 
conceivably merge some of the games together to make something to to make a feature film. I think the CDI the CDI Legend of Zelda animated game would be the with the best one. One of Gamelon. That would be one glorious. Of, yeah. yeah, one of Gamelon. Yeah. <laughs> you already got all the vocal lines recorded. Just use those. Yeah. It's a good job we're not a Zelda Just podcast, isn't it? Because we, like, our view account would go right down after that. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no CDI Zelda, please. No. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, that's funny. Like, I don't know, Jeff, if you remember, because um, way back in the in the ancient days of the internet in two thousand seven, uh, when we were filming our trailer, like that was back when YouTube poop was around. And oh yeah, I remember that one. So just the, all all the crazy mashup edits that they would do, and so after our trailer came out, YouTube Poop did a version of our trailer, uh, and oh. we saw that. Look, that's it. We're, we can retire now. This We're done. This the is high it. point of our life. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get any. It hasn't gotten any better. No, nope, it has not. <laughs> I, I just remember. I, I think I was at the library. I must have been. I was doing something there, and I know. I came across it and I was like, there's no way they're making a Zelda movie. What the hell? And I looked at it and I, I don't know. I, I fell for it at the time. Looking back, I'm like, how did I fall for that? Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> at, at the time it got me. So it was, it was very well done for its time. So yeah, that was, uh, that, that was quite memorable. Yeah. <laughs> you broke my heart. The, the biggest difference with that one was that, you know, IGN funded that one, but I have to give them credit. Like nobody said anything. They were like, please go do something cool. And we were like, okay, bye. And just came back and was like, here's, here's your trailer. <laughs> Uh, I mean, they, they, even though it was funded, it was like the first, well, bam, we could probably make more of these and just do it ourselves. It was the first thing we ever did. It was, it was literally like the, the launch of Rainfall Films. Launched our company. It was yeah. on April 1st, uh, 2008, along with the trailer. And lesson learned, do not launch your company on April Fool's. No one will think you actually exist. It's true. <laughs> lesson learned. I think because it was it was released by IGN as well. I think that's what added a bit of weight to it. I was like, oh, it's got to be real. It's on IGN, you know. It's, it, it really, yeah. And that was not the original plan. The original plan was to release it because uh, we actually finished it um, about five or six months prior, and <clears throat> we were we were planning on actually doing. Someone a whole... leaked something. It we was are... leaked. It was leaked to NeoGAF. Yeah. Uh, not the whole thing, just certain shots. Uh, and then uh, we were planning on doing like a whole series of these with IGM. But, um, and then uh, it was their idea to release it as an April Fool's, um, which it, it sucked because it meant we had to wait several months for it to come out. And we were so happy and proud of it. Yeah, we were so proud. We were just like wanted to show it to everybody. And it's like sitting on it for almost half a year. But we realized that them releasing it this way was probably going to garner way more hits and uh, probably a whole lot of people off. But that's that's part of the part of the game. But uh, the, that was a that was a very weird project because we yeah we were trying to do the whole thing in secret and yeah it was like looking back on it's like yeah you, you watch it now like there's no way anybody would fall for that thing which I think goes to show how sophisticated fan filmmaking has become over these last you know twelve years uh, it's incredible what people can do now I mean I think if we had made a new trailer as well that it would look just very different based on our experience now i mean even doing something like metroid i think would be a, a kind of a quantum jump in quality just based on our own experience between then and now yeah well you know things change over time you know goes by technology becomes greater and uh yeah i'm, I'm sure you could make a, a fantastic whatever you touched i'm sure you make an even better one so yeah i look forward to seeing more of them in the future <laughs> i'll tell rona to go away yeah i'm looking yeah. forward to actually being on set again that'll be fun 
the the time frame of the project um from shortlisting metroid uh, to the release of the sky calls what what was that you know are we looking at like was it a year two years i can't remember what the what the entire thing was now oh, um, man after pre-production was done it flew i mean we were yeah. done in no time <laughs> uh, seriously the, the pre-production was the longest part it was yeah wow it was um i think i'm trying to remember i think it shortlisted around the end of summer beginning of fall of 2014 and then it released to november 1st 2015 so just a little bit over a year and yeah like a, a huge portion of that time was uh, was us just figuring out how the hell we were going to do it and uh, uh like i mentioned trying to figure out if we can make the suit practically if we we're going to be shooting on location uh how the mocap process was going to work and uh it took actually it took close to a month for us to even get the mocap data afterwards because it we we recorded so much uh, it had to be cleaned up. There must have been a release date we were trying to hit too, though, because I remember you were like feeding me rendered shots to score, you know, that were like not wireframe, but like still rough because we were trying to to get it done <laughs> for yeah. some reason. We wanted to get it done in, in, in that year, in 2015, and we wanted to get it done before. It, the later in the year you get, later November and definitely December, <clears throat> um, it's it, that's not a good time to release things there you're typically audiences not aren't all that huge it's, it's the holidays people are away they're doing their stuff and especially if you're interested in people in los angeles seeing it if you're if you want executives or agents to see it then uh you got to do that before everyone goes off on vacation so that was the main thing we wanted we just wanted to make sure that we were maximizing the viewership yeah, not like we were doing it for them, but we wanted to make sure that if people were going to see it, it, the most amount of people could see it if they wanted to. Yeah, if you're putting all this work into it, you you want people to see it. I mean, isn't that the point of making a fan project, right? Of course. So yeah, other fans yeah. can appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so obviously, speaking of the legacy of it, we're five years out now from the original release of The Sky Cools. How do you guys feel about the movie, like reflecting on it, the response to it? And yeah, you know, just what you've created. I mean, it's great. I think it's probably the longest project we've ever made. It's like 11 minutes long, which was definitely a, a huge undertaking for us at the time. But I think that, uh, you know, not to speak for Sam, but I think that it's something that we are very proud of. But have learned so much that we would love to put those back into another project to see what the new bar could be set. I think it's a great culmination of the best we could do at that time and want to, to see what that is now. Yeah. Thinking back on it, just, I, I love the experience so much and I loved how it turned out. There's times, there's absolutely times where you make something and you spend a lot of time on it. And then afterwards you look back and you're like, eh, I could have done better here. I could have done better there. Uh, but I, I'm very proud of what we did and I'm really proud of the response that we got and, and so thankful for the fans reactions that uh, it's just, yeah, it's just really nothing but good memories. And the, the fact that we were able to unofficially play in that universe was just kind of a, a childhood dream. Yeah. Not one person on the project was doing it just cause I don't know, cause they were being paid to, or just because it was like a favor they were asked to, like every single person wanted to make the coolest like Metroid short that we could do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Just you, you take that energy, you take that, that experience that you had of playing the games originally and you try to put that on the screen and you try to experience that yourself when you're making it. And if you can do that, if you can get even just a fraction of that excitement, and, uh, and the, that, that 
fear of being stuck on a weird planet, completely helpless, just your own skills at your fingertips, then hopefully you can do a good job. And uh, I have fun rewatching it. I have fun seeing that all come together. It was, just, it was the, the, the collaboration was probably one of my favorites that we've ever done. Well, guys, it was really cool getting to hear just the backstory of making the movie and putting everything together. I mean, this is a fan project. So that being said, is there anything you'd like to say to the fans of the movie? Because there's a whole lot of them. <laughs> I just want to thank them. It, it's you, you never know what to expect when putting out something like this. Uh, I always say, I think we all say that we first we need to make something that we love. And if we make something that we love and we don't think about, we don't worry about everyone else, then you hope that there will be enough people out there that will enjoy it too. So mm-hmm. we put it out there and the, the response definitely was far beyond what we could have ever hoped for. And it just, it was so much fun seeing that and seeing, uh, we worked, well, we got, we talked with a lot of journalists. We talked with a lot of people who wrote some articles on it. And, you know, it's not just, not just the film, but of Metroid as a whole and Samus as a character. People want to see more of Samus and more of that whole universe. And so, uh, we had fun playing in there and I, I, I just, I can't wait to actually play a Metroid game again where I can step in there because I, I want Metroid on switch. Damn it. It's going to happen at some point. Don't Probably going to be switch too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. um, but, but thank you as well for, for making it possible. As, as soon as I saw that this was even an option, it was like, I've got to get this out there to our readers. We've got to get them to vote. We've got to, you know, show that there's an appetite for this. You know, we want to make sure it happens. And as soon as we saw that sort of vote gap narrowing, I was like, oh, this could actually happen. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. Um, so I'm just really pleased that everybody got behind that and they wanted that to happen. So, uh, yeah, thank you for making it possible. And, well, uh, well, we really appreciate you guys uh, coming on board and, and helping with the promotion of the of the, the voting process mm-hmm. and all that. And, uh, yeah, it was it was a it was definitely neck and neck for a while there, and uh, but yeah. you know, and doing that, and then afterwards, once the film came out, thank you for all your support and getting the word out there. Uh, I was really appreciate yeah, you guys. Yeah, a pleasure. Although now we know if we do another one, we can't put Metroid in there as an option because you guys will just force the vote. <laughs> well, I see yeah, nothing I mean, wrong with that. Guilty. So. <laughs> <laughs> well. You know, if you make a sequel, um, you've got Amanda as Samus. I, I can't play Samus, unfortunately, but I'll play a Federation trooper, and you can even kill me off in the first scene. It's right. fine. Uh, if we <laughs> your, your, suit, your suit will have to be red. Yeah, yeah more than likely. You, you, you can be the other non-CG character in the film. Yeah, sure. But like a stormtrooper something, just an extra in the background. There there just something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, for this episode's group discussion, we have the question here is, what is everybody's favorite moment from Metroid The Sky Calls? I'll go ahead and start with mine. And it's, 
I'm sure it's the same as everybody else's, but when Samus goes into the morph ball for the first time, it's just so cool just seeing it. it but the touch that made it so great is it wasn't just Samus just going into a morph ball and going. It was, it built up to it. So it's first she sees where she needs to go and then just seeing like initiate morph ball in the visor and then she turns into it. It was just the series leading up to it just made that scene so cool. And I just got really excited and anyway, when I saw it. That's really cool. Um, for me, it was just a little bit further along, and, and we touched on it earlier. Um, the, the the sort of uh, you know, it, it was Samus talking, and then you know, the, the Chozo was using Samus's voice and and speech to talk back to her, and I thought that was fantastic. I completely agree with you. It's a great great moment um really loved that and then obviously the part that follows that the big escape you know where she's got to leave there because you couldn't you couldn't have a movie without an escape sequence it's metroid um so that was really cool and she comes out there and she starts blasting everything and yeah really cool so that that moment for me really sticks out i think that's my my highlight from uh, from the movie I, I really liked the with the escape sequence. I really liked the how long have I got? <laughs> yeah, how much time <laughs> do I have? Like this, just felt like this. Right, we're here again. Okay, mm. and it was a realistic amount of time as well. This. It wasn't like three minutes. It was like, yeah, like yeah, yeah, forty yeah. minutes or whatever it was. <laughs> well, there were just so many really good subtle touches to it that really made all the Metroid games come even more alive. So it's like, you know, if you played Super Metroid and then you moved on and played playing Prime, it was neat seeing like everything from Super Metroid to kind of grow up and evolve more in Prime. And then seeing that like in real life, so to speak, just and how it was just these subtle cues instead of like, eh, here's this, eh, here's this. I don't know. I just thought that was a nice touch there. Yeah. And also the uh, just just the part where Samus is falling down through the shaft as well and, and just the lighting in that in that scene. That was just a great scene, a great shot as well uh, in the morph ball. You know, I've still got the same enjoyment and love for it from when I first saw it. I was like, oh, this is incredible. This is amazing. This should be a full movie. You know, they should be getting this commission. They should, you know, Nintendo should be biting <laughs> their hands off with this. This should be happening. Um, and, and I watch it now and I, I still have that same sort of feeling and enjoyment from it and it's like i want more you know and this is i think i actually wrote the question about the sequel i was like i just want the sequel now this is a this is a great thing we should have i think um f for me i don't i don't really have a specific favorite moment i think if, if you ask me to, to pin down a favorite moment my i was initially erring towards the morphle um same, same as amanda although for i for slightly different reasons because one i do love the build-up i like that proper seeing that and you know as a fan you know what well, you're gonna have to do a morph pull down that so like you kind of play with fans you kind of tease fans with that and it's like you know you know what she's gonna have to do and i kind of like i kind of like the way that you didn't um and you actually obviously you mentioned this earlier when you were talking about sound effects you didn't obviously with the suit you took a more realistic approach with the suit, but I kind of respect the fact that the morph ball was kind of prime almost prime style proportions like you didn't feel a need to make the morph ball more realistic just because of what you were doing i think the morph ball still felt very video gamey silly like she can squish down into this thing and you didn't 
feel a need to explain it. You were just like, let's just roll with it. Oh, I see what you did there. She rolls into one of those big transparent like balls that you like <laughs> run around with more on balls. the water. <laughs> Literally more with a big hamster ball. Bumping into each other. <laughs> but no, I just and, and I enjoyed the fact that the morph ball was very true to the the games. Not that I didn't not that I was shouting at my screen wanting the suit to be more realistic to it. I just enjoyed the fact that you lent in like you knew where to lean into the games and where to kind of take your own slant and i really enjoyed that what i loved and this was uh america doing the mocap her one of her choices was that she did she like backed up she did like a lead up to it we're like i need some more space to do this little transition here and something about that made it so more so much more Mm -hmm. tangible that uh i I really i love that choice so we wanted to really highlight that in the in the short and did like a full dive into a ball. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, she did that. A full roll, which which made it pretty easy to transition into the, <laughs> the actual morph ball. Yeah, she did a wonderful somersault, like a dive into a somersault. And so it was actually very oh, yeah. easy to do that animation. Well, that's cool. Because, yeah, I do, I do like, I guess, in a sense, I might be backtracking a bit. But I like the fact that whilst you lent into the morph ball being what it is, there was that slightly more realistic element of she didn't just press a button in her suit <laughs> and then start rotating forward like a hamster um so having the run-up like gave that a real nice momentum so yeah no that was good that that scene had a number of iterations too like i remember we had it set up that it was like a wide angle shot at one point and you could like kind of see the ball going through like the maze like prime style from afar and then we had well what if we put the camera like in the tube and then how it kind of like flew by the camera had a number of iterations and how the trail looked on it it was your input on those on some of those shots that that really improved it because she she wasn't that one shot or i guess it's kind of two shots cut together inside the tube seeing the the ball fly past i think you mentioned that it didn't feel fast enough that it needed to feel yeah i wanted it to be real hectic yeah yeah so uh like widening the lens uh, increasing the speed so like it's she just flies by in a few frames and you just see that trail uh go that tron trail go go down past uh really helped and yeah the, the the wide shot of her going through like the seeing like the network that there's like this vast underground network <clears throat> was you know obviously heavily inspired by the games. I think I had a lot of Tron Trail <laughs> input because when the when the when her ship took off from the planet too, I was like, it should have trails too. <laughs> you were like, well, it's funny because like when I was watching it, I was like, oh, that reminds me of Tron. Appropriate decade. Yeah, yeah, and no, I, I think ultimately, and I'm really glad that you guys just were talking about this straight like off the bat on the podcast because I think. Ultimately, my favorite, I guess it's not a moment, but my favorite thing about the film is just that retro sci-fi vibe. Like, I love grubby sci-fi. So, like, when it starts and all the monitors look like um, 2001 and it's kind of like the weird, um, you know, all of the text at the top of her visor and stuff. And it all just feels very lived in and very grubby and it's it's sci-fi but you can kind of smell the oil and that's kind of what i really liked about it because that's that's always how i've imagined metroid i even think prime kind of had that same vibe going on when you're poking around the chozo ruins and stuff and that's always how i've felt i've preferred metroid and whereas fusion and stuff was not fusion sorry um other m was that sleek sci-fi i i enjoyed that you guys went for that grime grimy sci-fi that is our favorite as well 
Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really fun getting to talk about all this. Um, if anybody wants to find more of your work, where can they find you? Uh, well, it's really we're on YouTube, Rainfall Films. Uh, you can also go to our website, rainfall.film. And uh, we do have a Twitter, but we honestly don't post there very much. <laughs> best, thing, uh, best thing to do is go to our site because we usually update it with our most recent projects. Well, that's it for this episode of the Shine Sparkers podcast. If you have any questions you'd like for us to answer, make sure to tag us on Twitter or on Facebook, and we'd be happy to answer them. Give us something fun to discuss, and we'll see you next mission. See you next mission. See you next mission. See you next mission. You know, one of the first things I noticed in the in the video, in the Sky Calls video, was, was like you were saying how at the... Sorry, I'm getting tongue-tied again, trying to... Yeah, sorry. You know, I hit my head a month ago. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, actually. I didn't know. Yeah, I had to bring yeah, it up. Not yeah. only that, I got hit by a truck two weeks ago, so, oh, you know. She, she, she actually did get... Well, she, she was in a vehicle. Has it not just... like The truck didn't just hit her. It was like the whole, I didn't the whole get, car. Yeah, yeah, no, I was... Yeah. My car was totaled from a big, giant semi. Oh, my God. Um, you, you need a <laughs> so various suit. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> really right? I, needed, I totally need a various suit. Um... Now you've mentioned like having including the dialogue by having like the helmet and everything. Uh, the character of Samus is usually mute throughout the series. Um, so what made you decide? Or let me sorry, let me restart that. Sorry. All right, for this episode's group discussion, we have the question here: Is what is everybody's favorite moment from Metroid: The Sky Calls? Okay, I'll go ahead and go with mine. Yeah. I guess I'll go ahead and start with go mine. Go for it. Yeah. yeah. So. Because I said it, so. <laughs> Although I will say I do not miss working on music videos. No, music videos <laughs> can absolutely go stick it up there. This podcast was edited by Darren Kerwin, with music from Maserati. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can find more at shinesparkers.net, along with the latest Metroid news, community features, and exclusive content. Alternatively, you can also find us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next mission.